As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Here's one for you from Bill Dudley, the headline of his latest piece, The Federal Reserve Owes the World Amir Culper, Bill Dudley, Bloomberg Opinion columnist and former New York Fed president, a good friend of this program as well, joins us right now. Bill, let's start there. Amir Culper, what do you want that to look like? I think the Fed needs to explain to the world what went wrong. Why why are we having to raise rates off 400 basis points this year, four percentage points this year? That's a huge amount of tightening in a short period of time and is evidence that the Fed was very late. Um, the Fed made a couple of mistakes. Number one, how they implemented their 2% average inflation regime. They basically tied their hands and said, we can't raise rates until a whole bunch of things happen. Uh, number two, they made some important forecasting errors, both on inflation and on the tightness of the labor market. I think, you know, doing a mea culpa, I think is important to, to, to basically build the Fed's credibility uh, for the future. If you don't admit error, how can you be confident that the, that the central bank will make, won't make a whole other mistake next time? Bill, do you think they can do both that and do something which you asked them to do a number of weeks ago, which is to be much more open about the pain that this country, this economy is about to go through? And I wonder if they do both. You say it enhances credibility. Do you think it also invites questions about whether it should retain its independence? Well, I think you want the central bank to retain its independence because you don't want monetary policy to be politicised. Monetary policy becomes politicized. You're going to have even worse monetary policy than we've gotten over the last couple of years. Bill, on the flip side, there is an increasing chorus of big names saying that the Fed is moving to make a policy error on the other side by raising too far that a deep recession is not an inevitability, but will be the consequence of them raising rates as much as they're expected to raise rates. Are you sympathetic to that view? Well, I think that's a logical outcome of being very slow to tighten in the first place. Uh, if it's been slow to tighten, then you have to do a lot to catch up. If you do a lot to catch up, you may not notice that you've done more than uh, that's actually sufficient. I think uh, you know hard landing is very likely because the labor market has gotten too tight. The Fed needs to push the unemployment rate up significantly, and that's likely to lead to a recession. Uh, I think it's almost inevitable at this point. What's the economic benefit to the Fed coming out and being honest and saying what John was pointing out is a very difficult message to swallow, which is we made mistakes. Oh, and by the way, we're going to necessarily make a mistake on the other side, tighten into a hard landing. Uh, What does that give them in terms of credibility that can actually help ameliorate the cycle? 
Well, I think that they are not going to say that we're going to tighten on purpose to generate a recession. I don't think you'd ever expect a central bank to, to say that. But I do think you know Powell has now endorsed the notion that there is going to be some pain involved. I think what the Fed has not done, though, is admitted, how do we get into this mess in the first place? And I think that's the part of the, uh, the message that the Fed needs to, to send to markets to build their credibility for the future. Bill, credit to you. I remember doing a panel with you and Mohamed Alarian back in June, maybe May of 2021. And you were both making this point that the Fed needs to appreciate some two-way risk here, perhaps start by pulling back on QE. That would have meant maybe going six months earlier than they actually did, Bill. What difference would six months have made, do you think? I think the advantage of going earlier is you wouldn't have to go as fast. and You'd have more ability to assess the effects of your actions. Right now, they have to get to tight very quickly. And given the long legs of monetary policy, this increases the risk that they overdo it. If you spread out the monetary policy tightening over a longer period of time, you have more time to assess the impact of your actions. You've talked, Bill, about how you could see a peak Fed funds rate north of 5%. The market is coming to your view. You are out front that way. Right now in the market, we have a nearly 4.7% terminal rate for next year. Where have you changed your view on where you think the Fed has to go in order to bring in inflation and honestly address some of the flaws of the previous thinking? I don't think it's so much that the peak in rates has to be higher. I think the fact is the Fed has to hold that peak for, for a longer period of time. I think the Fed's strategy here is not to just keep hiking regardless of what's what's happening in terms of the real economy. But I think they want to go to a restrictive policy and then they want to hold it there until they see clear signs that that's actually bringing inflation down and generating more slack in the U.S. labor market. Hey, Bill, wonderful to catch up. Great read, as always, and good to have you on the program with us this morning. Bill Dudley there, the former New York Fed president, and now, of course, Bloomberg Opinion columnist, amongst other things. Sima Shah joins us now, Chief Global Strategist of Principal Asset Management. Sima, ringing the bell at the NASDAQ today. Buzzing for that, I'm sure. I always look up. Don't you always look up around the opening bell and people emphatically clap and yeah, yeah. wave their hands? Even, even when it's down, which is always kind of interesting I, I, to me. I always find that weird. If we're down yes. today, will you scream and, and <laughs> shout? And I'm still going to clap. You're still going to clap, clap, even if we're down. Okay. She's paid opportunities to buy. There you go. <laughs> is that, is that going to be your story whilst you're here? <laughs> the opportunities to buy this? On today? No. No, I, I, <laughs> I have to say, I think, I think there's, there's worse to come for the market, unfortunately. You know, you talk about, we, we talk all this time about the Fed, about inflation, about growth, and then you add in all these additional geopolitical pressures. It's very difficult to find anything to be positive about at the moment. And a lot of these things I don't think is fully priced into the market either. Um, earning seasons, of course, is going to be really interesting. We are expecting to see weakness starting to really feed through now. Um, a lot of the narrative about margin pressures, but also just generally starting to feel the pressure of consumers potentially pulling back from next year. So there's a lot, I think, to be concerned about for investors. When you say it's not priced yet, out of everything you've just said, what isn't priced? I still think that the recession is not priced. Right. So I think the market is eventually, I mean, look, it keeps switching in, uh, every few days. But I think generally speaking, the market is coming to terms with the idea that rates are going to go higher and they're going to stay there for, for longer as well. The bit that the market is still playing around with is this recession. You know, a lot of people still thinking that soft landing is possible. We think it's very unlikely. Um, and with recession, unfortunately, does come earnings recession. 
So which aspects of the market are not sufficiently priced? Because some people might look at retail, for example. They might look at some of the semiconductors and they'll say, recession's priced there. Where is it not? Or is it even the 40% decline on semiconductors that has not fully appreciated the depth of this downturn, not just whether there will be a technical recession? So like you said, I think there are segments of the market which really have struggled. And semiconductors have, have been one of them. Unfortunately, the latest news probably suggests that they could be even further down, downward movement from there. So valuations at this kind of stage they are instructive, but they're not going to tell the full story. So in the same way in the last five, ten years, we've known that valuations are very expensive, but it hasn't stopped markets from going up. Cheap valuations don't necessarily mean that markets are not going to go down further. I was reading a, a piece of research over the weekend, which was talking about how if you look at some of the AAII sentiment, it looks really bearish. People say they're feeling terrible. Things are going to go down. And then you look at their actual positioning, and they're still pretty invested in equities. They're still actually uh, fairly bullish, at least in terms of their positioning. What's the trigger to wash that out? So I think... I'm not sure if you're going to see necessarily a washing out because even from today, you know, we are expecting further declines. But the, quanti the one question that keeps coming up, I've been traveling around the US in the last week. The one question keeps coming up is like, but when is this floor going to come? When can I start buying? Right. So that is the question that people are trying to figure out. When is the timing for them to increase their exposure? And I think at this stage, you know, if we look at historical bear market cycles, your average downfall is 27 percent. Now, if you're down 24% and you don't think this is going to be like the GFC, then we're more than halfway there. So if you're not already underweight, this is probably not the time to start reducing even further. What do they ask you about Europe when you tour this country? How much do they hate that market right now? So much. But I understand that. And actually, I, I, I fully agree with that perspective for Europe. It is a very, very challenging time. And I think that what we're starting to see in the US is they are understanding that actually in Europe, the situation is considerably worse. Um, and put on top of that is there's so many things that we cannot predict. We're not meteorologists. We cannot predict what the weather's going to sure. be. No one in the whole world probably can, can, can predict what's going on in Putin's head. So with those two incredible uncertainties, despite European valuations being so cheap, this is probably not the time to increase your exposure when you have those two things hanging over you. You talked about the persistence of this, particularly around rates, that we could be living with this for the next 12 months or so. Then that's also a conversation taking place much more so in Europe now that we could be living with this for more than one winter, maybe two, perhaps even longer. When you start to think about the United States in that respect, 10 years ago we talk about the United States decoupling from the mess that was playing out in Europe. Is that still the case? Would you say that's still the case? I think it is to some extent. I mean, one of the things that we are studying to feel is that in the US, there is this belief that there is a complete decoupling. But of course, that doesn't happen. You know, Europe, whatever European tensions there are, whatever the energy situation is, there will be leakage into the US. Um, in Europe, you're already seeing this huge substitution from natural gas towards oil. And of course, there will be inevitable repercussions for the US as well. So I don't think it's a full decoupling. I think the US does come out um, better than Europe but certainly not complete decoupling. Okay, so bear with me, but everyone who I know is going to Europe for a vacation, including Tom Keane, who's over in Europe right now. And we're hearing about the negative effect from the strong dollar on US companies, but that's because things are on sale effectively from say, European industrials. So when is the currency differential a good thing for Europe the way it used to be, say five years ago, when the currency wars were reversed? Well, I think you've already seen some of that play out this summer, which is why you haven't seen European GDP actually contract yet. If you look at Spain, Italy, all of the southern European countries have benefited significantly from the weak currency. And that is going to moderate a little bit some of the downturn that Europe's going to feel. 
But this is, I mean, from an investment perspective for the US, it's one of the key reasons why we've been over overweight mid-caps rather than large cap. Uh, the mid-cap exposure to domestic is significantly higher than what you see for large cap. Um, and, you know, they've outperformed and we expect them to continue to outperform. One theme that we've heard from a lot of the investors who we speak with is it's starting to look attractive to go into longer dated bonds. Uh, how much conviction do you have around that kind of view, both in the US, but also in places like Europe? So we have, for example, increased our exposure to long dated bonds fairly significantly in the last two months. Um, a couple of reasons. One is that we are, as I said, expecting recession to hit next year. And in that environment, typically, you should see downward pressure on yields. But like you said, in Europe, there's the added pressure. What are central banks doing? They're, they're raising rates, but they're also pushing down the long end. Or at least they're trying to push down the long end. Um, at some point, there's going to be some kind of success, or at least it's going to stop any further movement. So if you have to be anywhere on the yield curve, I would rather be on the long end than the short end, for sure. In the gilt market or treasuries? I don't think you want to be in the UK. I asked the question because you're based in London. I just wondered whether you've been buying gilts in the last couple of weeks. I, we did not foresee what was going to happen to the gilt market, like sure. anyone else, I think. Um, just generally speaking, the UK, we have see serious concerns about the fiscal story is not going to improve, I think, as much as they can walk back. Uh, there are certain segments of that political story, the fiscal story, that they're going to stick to. Uh, so if you're looking at a longer-term horizon, the UK has a worse inflation problem. It's got a worse growth problem. Uh, so if I had to pick one over the other, I would pick the US. Halloween budget, what do you want from that? As an economist, I want them to unwind everything. Yeah. Unwind everything, just go back to having some serious fiscal policy where they're trying to actually... Uh, balance the budget in the same way that really in the UK, unlike many other countries, fiscal balancing is a hallmark of fiscal policy for the last two decades. So for them to walk away from it at this time is a very difficult time. In two or three years time, who knows, trickle down economics could work. Do you think that everyone in the UK right now, you ask them about what's going on with the gilt market and they just sort of sigh and look at you like, please, can I just disappear right now? Don't buy the gilt market. Yeah. <laughs> That's sort of... If someone did buy the gilt market and made a tremendous amount of money. Can I just say that when the Bank of England stepped in and yields dropped by, what, 100 basis points at one point that day? Which is the reason why, I mean, to Seema's point, the reason why the long end perhaps is getting some credence or some conviction on people because they do believe eventually central banks will step in, at least for that, because of some of the structural issues that require some Even sort of Even without them stepping in, change. at some point you'd have to believe bonds start behaving like bonds, going right. into an economic downturn. People have gotten wrong what that point is, though, again and again. And we have seen people change their expectations for how high yields could go. And at this point, I think there's a feeling of being shaken a bit about what is the base at this point after a world of zero rates for so long. Massively. Zero confidence in a high volatility world. Zero confidence. A complete lack of conviction. Seema, thank you. Enjoy ringing the bell. You press a button, right? It's, not, it's, it's, it's a button. It's I wish it was button. the... So disappointing. The big... There's nothing cool about that, is nothing. there? Just sort of... I, I don't Technology. Seems so much better. Principal asset management should go in with your own bell and just, you know, shake things up. <laughs> Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio.
Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Jill Moe is going to join us now. Feels like Euro crisis all over again, except it's different. Chief Economist at AXA Investment Managers. Jill, let's start there. Let's just start with the key differences between what we're facing now and what we faced back then. Well, first of all, at the time, we had massive uh, external imbalances in, in the periphery. We had massive current account deficits. So you had an issue with the government, but you had an issue with the way the entire economy was working in the south of, of Europe. You don't have that you know, now. You know, they, those countries have really done a good job at, at, at you know, re-establishing uh, a proper you know, external, external position. The other big difference is that we have different instruments. You know, the big issue we had in 2010 and 2011 is that there was nothing in the arsenal that you could use to actually stop this. We didn't have the uh, the SM, we didn't have uh, an ECB, which after that has proved its, its flexibility. So there was this you know, scramble to finding institutional uh, solutions in just a matter of months. Now, at least we know that we can rely on those emergency mechanisms if things get to the point that we need to, uh, to, to use them. And I think the market knows it, and that explains... It's one of the reasons why we haven't seen, for instance, a lot of contagion uh, moving away from Italy and, 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 and affecting other countries in the South. We know that the instruments are there. They came up with OMT with Draghi in the summer of 2012, and the beauty of OMT is it never got activated, never had to be used. This summer they came up with TPI, the Transmission Protection Instrument. Is that right? Yes. TPI? Okay. When does TPI start to become a real consideration? 250 basis points are spread right now. I'm just trying to w- wonder, what's the threshold when that starts to kick in? They, they've never been clear on this and they don't want to be clear on this. I'm talking about the ECB, obviously. There's sure. an awful lot of discretion there. Uh, my guess is that uh, it's not just a case of the level of the spread or the level of interest rates. It's the speed at which things are, are moving. And so far, it's been fairly contained. Uh, the biggest issue for me with TPI is actually not of a technical nature. It's, it's political. Uh, the way TPI has been designed, it's definitely not... Uh, uh, done in a way that would protect the government against its own mistakes. Uh, and that's the issue. You know, if uh, you could come up with a situation where the market is punishing a state for things which it has not even done or announced, then TPI is probably there. If a government is doing stuff which is triggering a sort of rational reaction by the market, then TPI is probably uh, not the right instrument, and then you need to go to, to MT. But so far, at least, the news that we have from Italy, which is you know, the biggest issue in there, is that the government, the new government, we don't have one yet, but the, the noises we got from the, the new majority, is that they want to be prudent. So if they don't do, uh, if they don't make big policy announcements that would make the ECB nervous, they could actually benefit from TPI. And there is a relationship with the market that you can build on that. 
I just can hear your voice in my head right now. What's that? I can what hear I Jonathan. Saying? You're, you're saying, mind reading me. yeah, yeah, you're mind reading Jonathan because it's very loud right now. And he's saying, okay, so they're going to talk about political risk in the peripheries. What about the fact that Germany is the biggest risk right now to the entire European economy? And that I, some of I these don't programs. know how you strip out the two things. So there really you go. Don't. So what's the what's the answer? How is this situation different, both with the political considerations and from just distinguishing from the euro crisis of 2010, considering that Germany is one of the biggest problems. One of the biggest downside risks to the entire economic outlook. Germany is you know, clearly one of the biggest downside risks to uh, to the macro story, but it's also the country which has the widest policy space, and they are using their policy space quite a lot. I mean, you've seen the announcements that we we had last week from from the German government. Uh, they still can mitigate a lot of the current pressure that they get from 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 gas prices uh, with uh, the billions that they are about uh, to to spend. So in this case, yes. It's quite negative of the last two, three quarters. You know, a, a recession in Germany is absolutely unavoidable, I think, at this stage. But we know that they can do, deal with this on their own forces, which is not something that we have in other countries. That's the big difference. Although you do have to wonder how much higher inflation is going to be for a longer period of time, given the fiscal response in Germany, and that the political pressure from the peripheral regions will say, if you guys can have such a big fiscal response, we can too, because you're going to just let us you know, suffer as we finance your deficit by bringing down the cost of uh, your, your financing through a, a weaker euro? Uh, a key issue there, I think, is um, whether all this triggers another round of debt mutualization in Europe, which is definitely what we need to see. When we had a pandemic, we ended up with debt mutualization. It was partial, obviously, it was the next generation pact, but we did it. I'm a bit surprised and, and disappointed that we haven't seen more progress on debt, another round of debt mutualization to deal with the fallout from the Ukraine war. But there is going to be a point where we will get there. I mean, Europe is always you know, uh, tiring for, for external observers because it takes so much time to get to the right solution. But I'm, I'm quite convinced that if we get to a situation where we will see bigger cracks appearing in our fabric, you will see this further movement of debt mobilization. You will see actually a capacity from the EU as an entity to provide support uh, to the most fragile countries. We've done this with Italy with the Next Generation Pact. Fourth time being, it's not done to deal with the fallout of the, Ukra uh, the Ukraine war. But I, I really have no doubt that we would get there if need be. Let's talk about the cracks right now. The mystery for many of us, the ECB, why is it not forecasting a recession? How on earth are they not forecasting a recession in the Eurozone? Now, I was, I was, I was very surprised. And then I, you know, uh, I reminded myself of, of, of my time when I was in central banking. You probably don't want to be the one you know, uh, validating market expectations of, 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 of a recession. You probably don't want to add to the general bleakness in, 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 in the system uh, by coming up with you know, a, a, a very scary, a scary forecast. I guess it's part of, 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 of what central banks usually do. I noticed that in the US, the Fed has taken an awful lot of time before saying that, yes, maybe unemployment would have to rise to get inflation back under control. Well, it should be the same in, in, in Europe. You'd, central banks very rarely want to be at the bottom of the distribution when it comes to forecasts. Sure, uh, except that there is a credibility issue that the uh, central banks will go through with the tightening plans that they're projecting because casual observers would say, well, you put A plus B together, you get recession. And they're saying, no, 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 A plus B equals roses and lots of beautiful things. So at what point does that undermine the faith that they will continue with their tightening cycle? Well, they don't deny the risk of the recession, to be to be fair. I mean, we, we didn't have a, a super rosy message coming from, 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 from the ECB, but 
they are in a complicated position because, and that's a big difference with with the US. Um, inflation in Europe is not, or is not essentially domestically driven. It's none of our fault uh, to, uh, to 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 summarize. And we have an ECB which is forced into a tightening uh, to keep inflation expectations anchored in a situation of you know, massively adverse uh, supply side shock. It's not an easy thing to explain especially if we've spent the last 20 years, not just in Europe, but also in the US, explaining to uh, stakeholders in the real economy, but also in the markets, that, you know what, central banks have, have your back. And this time, no, sorry, central banks cannot have your back because you know, there's an inflation issue, there's an inflation expectations issue, and uh, you know, central banks are not going to be, to be your friend. It's incredibly complicated to explain, again, coming after 20 years, of monetary policies which have been extraordinarily accommodative. They're delaying the inevitable though, aren't they? They'll have to confront this at some point. They're talking about raising interest rates. A lot of people assume that by the end of the year, this is the economic situation we're looking at, whether they forecasted it or not. Can they keep on hiking? As the numbers clearly show, this economy's in recession. Yeah, my, my, my point is that you know, if there, I think there's already a debate actually at the ECB. Uh, which is for now not having a direct impact on their immediate decisions. Um, they all agree on the idea that you no, know, our monetary stance was super accommodative. You bring it, let's say, to the upper end of the neutral range. And then this is where the differences appear. You have those who are going to say, I don't care. I just continue hiking as long as inflation is there. And others, and I would probably agree with, with those who would say, look, you know, once we've brought our policy rate at the upper end of, of the neutral range, let's stop a while. Let's pause yeah. and let's see how things happen. But for the time being, there is an alignment, actually, of doves and hawks around this idea that, in any case, our stance was far too accommodative to start with. So I don't expect, actually, this debate to really trigger, to really have an impact on decisions before the very end of this year. In the meantime, it's, you know, uh, as, as j will say, uh, they will keep at it. Are you feeling the pain of Euro-dollar parity personally <laughs> in your first few days of being here? Uh, I'm certainly not the most you know, vulnerable <laughs> person on, on, on earth, but uh, yeah, I've been in, in New York for two days now and uh, yeah, you feel, you feel that your coffee is much it's, more expensive. It's a change. Indeed. Yes. It's a shock. Bramo, I took the other side of the trade going over to Europe and it feels so much better. It's so great. It's, isn't it great? Everything's on sale. It's you know, so exciting. For Americans going over, Jill. It's a fantastic time. Uh, please, we, we need you. Yeah. We need American <laughs> tourists. I can tell you, I was there, I it was there, you. It was there in the summer, and everywhere you went, I just heard American accents. Uh, everywhere. American accents pretty much everywhere. It's your mate. Thank you, sir. It's good to see you. That's fine. Maxa Investment Managers, and I know you're going down to the IMF meeting, so enjoy. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. 
Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Bob Yorga can talk to us about energy. Joins us now, Energy Futures Senior Strategist and Executive Director at Mizuho. Bob, you said you're not a big believer in the OPEC plus 2 million barrel production cut. What do you mean by that? Well, I think they will see uh, only about 1 to 1.1, 1.2 million barrels of cuts that are actually made in this uh, OPEC um, production cut deal. You'll see Saudi Arabia cut. They're good for their word. Uh, United Arab Emirates, same thing. But there's a lot of folks in uh, a lot of countries in OPEC that are underproducing for size. They're not going to cut production further. Uh, Russia's basically around 1.3 below the existing quota going into the OPEC meeting. Nigeria was about 800,000 barrels below. Angola was 400,000 barrels below. They're not going to cut any further. And a lot of the other participating countries are happy just to stay where they were. They're not going to go out and pull back on production today. Um, they're just going to do their best to stay where they are. They're struggling to be where they are. So I would see, I would expect to see Saudis cut. I would expect to see the UAE cut for about 1.1 million barrels. Given the lack of spare capacity, Bob, why are prices not higher? Demand is really the issue here. I think that's another one that the OPEC folks missed a little bit. The, pro- the problem is not supply. The, bu- the problem is demand. Um, we are here. The dollar is higher for starters. That is a reverse correlation to the, cr- to cr- the barrel, to crude oil. Higher the dollar, the um, less dollar it takes to, make, to buy a barrel of crude oil. Uh, the China situation is very negative uh, for, for OPEC. That's a big piece of the demand puzzle that's been taken off the, uh, off the table. So until that comes back, you're not going to get, we're not going to return to $130 like we were in March. Um, but you also have the, the global economy teetering on the brink of a global recession here. That's a demand event. Right. Cutting barrels is not going to make a big difference there. Bob, on October 16th, uh, the People's uh, Party Congress, National Congress over in China is going to kick off. And a lot of people are looking at this as a threshold moment after which perhaps the zero COVID policy could be lifted in some capacity. What would happen if you did see a softening, especially as we've heard pushback from other officials recently about how unsustainable this policy really is? If you come out and you see that red headline on the Bloomberg terminal, that's going to definitely see the price go up a little bit here. Um, we probably would trade towards if China's on the way back and if that's a big uh, move in the right direction, we probably will see the market trade towards $100. But I don't see it returning to $130 where it was at the beginning of the Ukraine crisis. So, yes, that would be um, that's a big piece. That would be a big demand construction event and it would be very positive for the market. But um, um, above and beyond that, with the Fed still uh, likely to increase uh, the rate situation by 75 basis points next meeting, 50 the one after that. I mean, they're purposely pulling back on the uh, global economy. So uh, it's, it's going to leave a mark. 
Hey, Bob. Thank you, sir. As always, Bob Yorker there of Mizuho, Americas. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.